Welcome back to the Thundersticks Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Kreider, and today I am going to be breaking down the Oklahoma City Thunders trade deadline haul. From the two trades today, what it means for the team moving forward in the short term and long term implications from their moves. It has been a crazy week or so of NBA trade rumors. The rumor mill continues to churn out and you start to see some big moves happening about four days ago. Kyrie Irving getting traded to the Dallas Mavericks to kick things all off. It has not slowed down up until the deadline concluded at 2 p.m. Central Standard Time on Thursday. But lots of big moves. I mean, if you're a Phoenix Suns fan, you're looking at Kevin Durant now on the roster. TJ Warren as well. Uh, but also Darius Baisley coming in. That was the second trade of the day for the Thunder. First one, though, came with the Boston Celtics. They end up moving Mike Muscala in exchange for Justin Jackson and two future second-round picks. And there's more to this. Because of Muscala's recent contract extension, he basically had a no-trade clause. He had to accept this deal. He did to push it through. But Oklahoma City also created a $3.5 million exception with this deal. So they're able to absorb a player at 3.5 mil or less before it expires, and they could potentially add more future draft capital as well. Justin Jackson on the return for Oklahoma City. He is expected to be waived. He played for the OKC Thunder back in the 2020-21 season. Played sparingly. And then he was ultimately bought out so he could play for a contender. He joined the Milwaukee Bucks that season. And then he's kind of bounced around. 15th man for the Celtics this season. He had to beat out Jake Lehman and Broderick Thomas for that final roster spot. Really hasn't played much this year. But he will have the opportunity as an unrestricted free agent. Just looking at this, I mean Mike Muscala getting dealt is a pretty big move. Ever since Muscala has been on this team... He's always kind of been a topic in terms of could he be dealt at the deadline because he brings so much value to a role that every team could use, especially if you were a contender. He's one of the best pick and pop and stretch fives really out there on the market when you're looking for a role player. He's a star in his role and that carries a ton of weight. That's when you have to start getting the checkbook out and giving out assets to get players of his caliber. When you look at his overall stats, he's not popping off the page, you know, averaging 10 plus points per game. But in terms of efficiency, I mean, he is right up there. He's played four seasons with the Oklahoma City Thunder. First year, he was kind of getting in the groove of things. He only averaged about 12 minutes. But that following season, 2020 to 21, where you have Al Horford on the roster. He was able to carve out a really, really nice role. Averaged 9.7 points in 18 minutes. Last year, 8 points in 14 minutes. And this season, 6.2 points in 14 and a half minutes. So, it's not like he has a gigantic role in terms of the minutes, but he's super productive in those stints. He's shooting just about 40% from distance this season. Last year, he shot 42.9% from deep 
And when you look at his total body of work in a Thunder jersey, across his four seasons, he is tied for fourth in franchise history. This is the Thunder era, so 2008 on, and three-point percentage. He's a career 39.2% with the Oklahoma City Thunder. He ties with Paul George and Kenrich Williams at 39.2%. And the only people ahead of him are considered to be just absolute sharpshooters. Above him is Anthony Morrow at 39.4%. Danilo Gallinari shot 40.5%. And Kevin Martin, might be a surprise, he shot 42.6% when he was with the Thunder. Isaiah Joe, fun fact, is shooting 44.8% right now. I used 50 games as kind of that qualifying mark. And he has played 46. So in a week or two, you know, he might move uh, Muscala down. And really everybody down the board in this category really speaks to just how dominant Isaiah Joe has been this year with the Thunder. But Muscala, as a center, has just been in a very elite class. And is he someone that's going to play 25, 30 minutes for you in a game? No. But if you need someone to fill in the gaps, he is going to be your guy. Now, since this trade has broken, obviously you can kind of see uh, where his standing was. The Oklahoma City Thunder have valued him. Mike Muscala has valued the Thunder. You, you saw his exit interview a couple seasons ago where he was very emotional about staying with this franchise. You know, it was a little unclear uh, based on kind of the trajectory of this team if they wanted to bring back uh, Muscala, who would have been 30 years old at the time. And he was, you know, very open, transparent. He wanted to stick around the guys. You know, if he retired here, he retired here. He would be up for it. He wanted to be a leader. Back whenever he signed initially, um, he had the chance to opt out, believe it or not. Alec Burks and Muscala had agreed to terms on uh, contracts, but this is when Russell Westbrook was on the team and Paul George. So whenever that trade occurred with Paul and it was kind of clear the dominoes were going to start falling down, Muscala had the option to go elsewhere. He was expecting to go play for a playoff team. Burks decided to join the Warriors that offseason. Muscala sticks around. He continues to stick around. He's a pivotal part of the rebuilding process, and he's still on the team for the climb. I think with his skill set, he would have been just fine with this team for years to come. At 31 years old, he's a shooter. You can have two, three more years of very prominent play for Mike Muscala. I genuinely believe that as a bench piece. His role calls for 12 to 15 minutes per game. He'd be able to be serviceable in that area. But if he's not part of the long-term plans, which this deal would indicate, you do get two second-round picks out of it, and you get that exception. Sam Presti is always about that next move. He's looking to do well on the players. He always wants them to be in a good situation. But... In doing so, he wants to kind of prep for, you know, bigger deals. In acquiring two second-round picks, you might look at it and say, hey, well, they already have a treasure trove of second-round picks. What is this going to do to the stash? Well, whenever you want those big-time deals, no one's going to be able to outbid you with the amount of draft capital they've accumulated. So two second-round picks still carry some value here. And 
if there just wasn't a uh, a clear cut vision with him for the next couple seasons, you you sit him down and you kind of talk things through, and you get a new destination that's suitable for him. The Boston Celtics most definitely are that. They're one of the best teams in the league. They're contending literally a year removed from being in the NBA Finals, so they're very good, um, and they have needed a three-point shooter. I was on the phone earlier uh, with a Celtics podcaster, and we were just kind of talking about the Muscala deal and, and what it means. His priority had the Celtics getting a wing, a bench wing, number one, and number two, finding a stretch big for this roster. The Celtics have really good depth. And even at the center position, they're very talented. Let's not forget, I mean, they have Al Horford, who his role really pins him to the corner. He's supposed to be a stretch five with this team and just space the floor out. But outside of that, they still have some very promising talent. Guys like Robert Williams in the fold, Grant Williams in the fold. But if you need to find that glue guy for 12 to 15 minutes, Mike Muscala fits into the blueprint, I'd say in particular with like an Al Horford, where he's just able to spot up and get things going. Is there a clear-cut position for him? I don't think so. I think he can run the four or the five for this Boston team, and it's never really going to be his type of show. The one thing that's always stuck out to me in evaluating Muscala as a player is really how versatile he is on offense. I don't think he necessarily gets credit for it, but he is very efficient as a screen setter, popping out to the three-point line. It, very tough decisions, especially when SGA is the ball handler uh, in those scenarios. Now you're looking at guys like Jason Tatum being the guy coming off that, or Jalen Brown. I mean, geez, you're looking at their backcourt, even guys like Marcus Smart, Brogdon, Derek White, they're all very good at penetrating the basket. So if you kick it out to the top of the key, that's going to be a problem. Defenses are going to have to adjust to that. But also, in the fast break, he's one of the last guys to cross that half-court line. And what does he do? He goes and searches for those trailer threes. He'll go to the right wing and make you pay. And he's very sneaky when he does this stuff. But I think that's what makes him so special. You know, he almost uh, gets you when you're not looking all the time. You're thinking, you know, he's kind of hidden in the shadows, uh, and you forget about him. You cannot forget about a guy like Mike Muscala, very powerful from the offensive end in, in terms of just spacing the court out. But even defensively, I don't think he's a major liability. I always considered him to be a pretty solid option for the Thunder in that regard. You know, they were filtering a lot of different guys in at the center position these last couple years. Guys like Isaiah Roby uh, playing starting center minutes. Jeremiah Robinson Earl, I'd say, as well. You know, he's 6'8", 6'9", playing center. That's not what he played in college. That's not what Roby played in college. For Muscala, he's 6'10". You know, he can play the center position. Solid rebounder, and it wasn't like he was getting exploited on the defensive side either. I think if Mike Muscala's defense is your biggest gripe for a game, you've had a very good game of basketball. So for Celtics fans, you're getting a very good player and Mike Muscala, and I think it's an underrated pickup for them. Obviously, from the Thunder perspective, you see all the value and what Mike Muscala is able to bring to the basketball court. Even in st- if it doesn't show in terms of statistics, he's improving your player, the players around him, just because of the gravitational pull that he is going to bring in. But even as a player and as a leader, He has shown time and time again, he's somebody that you're able to rely on. So props to Mike Muscala. 
you know, he has done nothing but great things for this Thunder organization, and I guarantee that's going to continue on when he's playing for the Boston Celtics and when he's looking at playoff games yet again in the green and white jerseys. So that's a great deal for them, for the Oklahoma City Thunder. If you're looking at that long term, you're probably looking at guys like Chet Holmgren, Jeremiah Robinson Earl, and Jay Will to give those center minutes uh, a good run there. And I'd even say Dario Saric from the deal later on in the day. But for a true like secondary replacement to Holmgren, Muscala would have been the best in terms of spacing out the court. They have all these incoming picks. They have a lot of young guys, though. It's a tough call. They decide to trade Muscala, get him in a good spot. That's how Presti operates, and he was able to get that done. So I think it's a mutual uh, kind of handshake agreement where both sides come out with something very valuable, uh, and they're able to continue on their paths very, very successfully. In terms of what this means right now for the Thunder, they are going to be taking a step back in terms of their front court play. I think in the immediate future, you don't have Holmgren. As mentioned, you're really looking at Jay Will and Jeremiah Robinson Earl for those center minutes. Neither of them are able to play at that level from downtown. We've seen Jay Will kind of creep out to the perimeter, which is promising, but he wasn't a three-point shooter at Arkansas. And even though right now he's shooting fairly well at the NBA range, there's not a big enough clip right now to say, yes, he is a stretch five, especially with the resume that you have presented. Jeremiah Robinson Earl recently has been playing with the OKC Blue upon his call-up. I think he's just going to be as he was previously. You know, someone who's going to shoot 33 to 35% from distance. Consistent type of player, but is he a guy that you need to cover from distance? I don't think as much as Mike Muscala. If he's setting a high ball screen, you might drop down. You might try to cover SGA, and, and you'll allow a top-of-the-key triple from Jeremiah Robinson Earl. So they do take a, a bit of a dip. I think with this Thunder squad, they really do need perimeter floor spacers to amplify the driving ability of Shea Gilgis-Alexander. But I think they will work through it. Major cornerstone of this era of the Oklahoma City Thunder, though, one of four players from the 1920 roster, oldest player on the team at 31 years old, and now when you're looking at it, the three oldest members of the Thunder organization aren't even on the Oklahoma City Thunder. They're on the Oklahoma City Blue, Scotty Hobson at 33 years old, Andre Roberson at 31 years old, and Abdul Gaddy also at 31 years old. After that, you get to the Thunder's other pickup from the day. Oklahoma City got things rolling, moving Mike Muscala over to Boston, but that was not their only deal today. They end up moving Darius Baisley to Phoenix in exchange for Dario Saric and a future second round pick. We now know that is a 2029 second round pick. Darius Baisley's trade here was almost a coin flip. You know, you could have assumed that he was potentially going to be on the market, but would they find an offer and would they even elect to do so? Darius Baisley is also a player who's been on the Thunder's roster since 2019 to 2020. The other two, SGA and Lou Dort. And I mentioned this earlier, but uh, I realized that actually it's not 100% correct. Darius Baisley 
was or, or he he would be the longest tenured player uh, on the Thunder roster had it not been for the technicalities of the signing period back in 2019. Lou Dort went undrafted in 2019. Darius Baisley was a first round pick in the draft. Lou Dort got picked up on a two-way deal and it was signed on July 6th that year. Darius Baisley was signed on July 7th. So there's a one-day difference. Technically, Dort has been within the organization a day longer. But if we go standard contracts, he was the longest guy, longest tenured player on the team. And now he's joining the Suns as the youngest player on their roster at 22. So it's kind of crazy to think about and just evaluate the different timelines you're viewing here with the Thunder a couple seasons ago and now the Phoenix Suns and their present-day form where they are making a playoff push. This is another one where I think it is fairly mutually beneficial. Baisley is talented. He has showcased a ton of potential, even starting in his rookie campaign. When the bubble was going on, Darius Baisley was a major point of discussion. He was tearing it up in just those kind of pool play games, if you will. I think they had eight games before they got into playoffs. And in those eight games, he was showing a lot of promise. Even in the playoff series, he wasn't doing too bad for himself. He was able to hit threes when guys played up close on him. He was able to drive to the basket and not just create for himself, but create for others as well. He was very good as a playmaker. And whenever you start to see guys like Chris Paul get dealt to Phoenix, Danilo Gallinari end up signing in Atlanta, Steven Adams get moved as well. Baisley was one of those top guys in the development system. You had Shea Gilgis, Alexander, Lou Dort looked very good in that, you know, seven game series against the Rockets. And then I think you're really looking at Darius Baisley as that next guy because of those flashes and because really the expanded role of guys just getting gutted out of that roster. There were plenty of minutes to fill and he was able to slide in as a starter. He started for, I think, over a hundred consecutive games before getting benched last season in December for Aaron Wiggins in that little stretch. And he he played himself back into the starting unit uh, after that little dry spell that he had. But through that all, I think that this team has kind of shifted to where his place on the rotation was not as clean cut as it was in the initial stages of this rebuild. Darius Baisley is a playmaker. He is someone at the four who's able to handle the basketball and create for others. OKC is already really full of ball handlers, and because of that, you need the guys to surround them with, particularly that can shoot the basketball. Being a playmaker is something this organization has loved, and if you're a playmaker that can shoot the basketball, you are going to get ample minutes. They've built their roster I'd say even this draft, this past draft with these types of players, Jalen Williams, he's running point guard reps at Santa Clara. He was one of their primary ball handlers, but also very good shooter. Usman Jang, very similar to Josh Giddy in the sense that he's a playmaker at six foot ten, who didn't really have a clear jumper, but there's a lot of potential there. So they also brought him on with the idea of being a defensive playmaker who might be able to shoot down the line. Darius Baisley, kind of cut from that same cloth of where very solid defender, good handler, but that three-point shot never came to be. And that was always the one deal that made things hard on Mark Dagnall, it appears. 
because he was a little bit on the inconsistent side from distance. And teams would start to game plan around that to where they would leave him open at the wing or the corner and kind of force him to either take the shot or try to drive inside in a lane that just was not available because it was cut off uh, due to them sagging a little bit there. So he had moments, lots of patches where two, three games in a row, he'd be looking pretty solid, but then he just could not buy a bucket. And those trends kind of made it uh, difficult, as mentioned. Guys like Aaron Wiggins kind of coming into his own. Very consistent, who could play two, three, and even four defensively. And now this year as well, with the emergence of players such as, I'd say, Jalen Williams, J-Dub, Kenrich Williams. I mean, just very versatile guys on this roster. So he didn't have the clear-cut role he's had in years prior. And with him on an impending free agency as a restricted free agent, you have to look towards, are we going to give a qualifying offer? Are we planning on keeping him long-term? Similar to Mike Muscala, I think they kind of decided that, you know, maybe they look for another route. I think the Suns actually present a very good situation for Darius Baisley. Not only is Baisley reuniting with Chris Paul in Phoenix, but he is joining a team that is full of veterans and they need some youth. One thing that I have just loved looking at is how contenders and playoff teams have utilized second round picks to get young prospects. A lot of times, I think it's gone down just a little bit, in recent years, but a lot of times you see second round picks utilized for stash projects or you end up selling the second round pick off to another team. However, outside of draft night, you see second round picks kind of utilized in a different way now. Second round picks, someone said it, it's used like Monopoly money. Uh, In a way, yeah. I think you could say that because everybody's using them. There's no Steffian rule where you can't send uh, or you're not allowed to send consecutive seasons worth of them. That's only on first. So people are sending out just boatloads of second round picks to acquire talent now. One example you saw in the day was James Wiseman in a three-team trade that sent Wiseman to the Pistons, Sadiq Bey to the Hawks, and Golden State got five future second-round picks. What'd they do after that? The Warriors sent five second-round picks to the Portland Trailblazers in exchange for Gary Payton II. He's on year one of three. It's a two-plus-one deal with the player option. But you get Gary Payton locked up for a good amount of time. That's a good role player back in your system for five second-round picks. Some other deals that involve second round picks, Thomas Bryant, he was very efficient for the Los Angeles Lakers when Anthony Davis was out. Davis has now returned, so his role is a bit smaller, but he gets moved to Denver for Davon Reed in a couple second round picks. So that's a lot of value coming from second round picks. For the Nuggets, they're acquiring, I'd say, a very talented player in Bryant. How about this one, though? Bones Highland in his second season. He's been doing, I'd say, fairly well. Defensively, are there some question marks? Sure. 
In terms of shot selections, there have been question marks, but one thing is for certain. I mean, he can go off for 20 points in 10 minutes. That's a very valuable type of player to have on your roster. The Los Angeles Clippers, who have had their hands tied. They didn't really have uh, any true draft equity left after the Paul George trade. All those picks go in OKC, whether it be unprotected first-round picks or pick swaps. You can't really do much with that, so you have to get creative. They send two second-round picks in for a first-round pick from a year ago in Bones Highland, who is just an absolute firecracker for you off the bench. Other deals they've made, they sent out Luke Kennard to get some equity back in second-round picks. And then also with that, they were able to get Eric Gordon in a deal that involved John Wall. So you can construct your teams in different ways now, and a lot of teams have started to rely on these second-round picks. Phoenix Suns included. And I'll give one more example just because I think it ties into the young guys, and it's really a very similar situation Mo Bamba getting traded to the LA Lakers for Patrick Beverly in a second round pick. Why would I draw a comparison between Mo Bamba and Darius Baisley? It's because of contract situations. Both of them are going into their final season before hitting restricted free agency. And that means whichever team has them has their bird rights to where they can go over the cap and they can sign their guy. Also, they can match any offer sheet on the table. So the Lakers... They value Mo Bamba to where they want to pick him up. Even Rui Hachimura, they want to keep him around. So they have the restricted free agency rights. They can go over the salary and they still have a young prospect that they can continue to build upon. Same thing happens here with the Phoenix Suns and Darius Baisley. Now they have his restricted free agency rights to where they can play him out the remainder of this season, kind of get a gauge for if they want to keep him long-term. And if they do, they kind of have... You know, that first say in things. If someone else makes an offer, they can match and it's not going to be a problem unless they, you know, for whatever reason, don't want to dig into taxes any more than they already are. But they they can pan gold through this. And a lot of contenders are panning gold through the utilization of these second round picks. For Darius Baisley, there still is some potential there. You know, I think that his role really did not suit what Oklahoma City needed uh, for someone playing the four position for them. They needed someone to space the floor out and kind of complement SGA and Josh Giddy. He's able to produce, but when you are going to be that third or fourth option and you need to space the floor out, it is a bit of a tougher sell right there. So now he gets into a system with the Phoenix Suns, where you're surrounded by a ton of different assets who can put you in very strong situations. Defensively, I'd say he's above average as a defender, um, but you can see him utilized a lot more as a cutter potentially with this group. Chris Paul, insanely good passer, not nearly as many drives coming off of screens in the Suns system, a lot more movement, so that's going to leave some room for Baisley to kind of improve more on the offensive end. And... Honestly, you could see a situation where he ends up just balling out in a limited role with this team. The Suns are contending, so there might not be, you know, 20-minute games for him in store, but in the opportunities he has, I think they're going to let him grow. Um, So this is a great environment for him. I mean, 
second season in the league. He averaged just about 14 points per game and seven rebounds. A ton of reps and a ton of availabilities for him. Now it hasn't exactly been the same for him, uh, but you saw flashes all the time, and now he gets that change to where he very well could turn up a notch and, and be an effective player for the Phoenix Suns. He shot 40% from distance this year. It's not as many attempts as years prior, of course, but there is something to build off there. So excited to see kind of where that takes him and uh, what his future looks like with the Phoenix Suns moving forward. For the OKC Thunder, they get that second round pick um, out of what likely would have been a qualifying offer and waiting to see if they wanted to re-sign Baisley or letting him walk. So they get that second, but they also get a very interesting expiring contract in Dario Saric. Dario Saric, at age 28, is still a very solid NBA player. Now, he was out the entirety of last season with an ACL injury, and this year he's kind of getting back into the swing of things. Stretch four, I'd say, with the Thunder move him up to the five in a small ball situation, potentially, but he's naturally a power forward, and he's able to space the floor out for you. Over his career, he's done a very good job at that. He's a career 36% from distance, 84% at the free throw line, and if you need somebody to hit some shots in the mid-range or the three-point line, he's someone that can do that for you. This year, his role has been a little bit more limited than years prior. He's averaging 5.8 points and 3.8 rebounds in 14.4 minutes. Very similar to Muscala's output at 14.5 minutes this year. So you very well could just plug him in for this season, let him have that Muscala role, and see if you want to bring him back the next year. He's going to be unrestricted, so he could walk, but this is a very good fill-in for Muscala, given that you traded him earlier on in the day. So this is a good plug-in. With Justin Jackson, it has been said that the Thunder intend to waive him upon this deal being approved by the league. Haven't heard that on Dario Saric, so we very well could see him remain with this Thunder team and uh, see him utilized in a situation that I think would be very comfortable for him, just spacing the floor out for guys like SGA and Josh Gideon playing that pick-and-pop game. This very well could revitalize uh, his career to where he's getting another very solid contract after this at 28. If you're a stretch four, I continue to say it, you are going to continue to get those contracts because teams need stretch fours and they need stretch fives. That's the end of the conversation right there. So those two deals might be viewed as minuscule, but overall OKC ends up getting three second round picks. They get that trade exception and they get a player in Dario Saric, who I think is very interesting in the short term for them. I want to break down kind of outside of that what this looks like for the Thunder because their roster has now shifted a little bit here in roster spots. If Justin Jackson is to be waived, which I think that will happen. I mean, even the first go around, they opted to waive him because he wanted to contend a little bit. This is another situation where, you know, I don't think there's natural minutes for him right now. Um, so it might be another mutual party. But let's say they waive him. There's 14 spots and both two-way contracts are filled. So there's a standard contract that they could get somebody with in a matter of, you know, hours whenever this deal gets uh, pushed through. 
there's multiple different ways the Thunder could go about this. And it's interesting how this kind of connects to the G League as well. As you guys know, I monitor the G League heavily. Every podcast, I make some sort of reference for it. Some of you guys like, quit talking about the G League. Well, there are a lot of very fun stories in the G League. There's a lot of very talented players in the G League. And uh, there's a lot of success stories that you end up hearing about in the NBA. Um, But a lot of talent brews down there to where they could sign someone out of the G League and they could be a contributor. Look at Saban Lee for the Phoenix Suns. They just got him on a two-way deal and now he's playing significant minutes for them. When you need someone to rely on, look in the G League for a call-up. You can find a very suitable option for you. There's plenty of them. For the Thunder's situation, though, they could go multiple routes because the first option uh, kind of comes to mind is is do you just upgrade someone on a two-way deal last season Aaron Wiggins got his contract upgrade back in February now we're looking at February you have two very solid players in Lindy Waters the third and Eugene Omarui Lindy Waters is on his second year of his two-year two-way deal and Eugene is on his only year on a two-way contract with the OKC Thunder Lindy Waters fits a set role, just as I talked about with a guy like Mike Muscala. He is there to bring a stretch five presence. He can play well off the pick and pop. That's what the Thunder have needed. He suits that. For Lindy, same type of deal. He is a sharpshooter. It doesn't matter if it's a set shot or if he's coming off a screen. He's able to get the the ball down the basket. I mean, that's what you need there. And... He's done pretty well on the defensive side as well. With Eugene Omaruyi, I'd say he's a bit more of a Swiss Army knife. At six foot six, he's pretty burly, able to guard multiple positions. And even though he's not shooting the lights out, he's a very gritty player to where he can lead in rebounds in his stretch of minutes. He could lead in really any any category in his stretch of minutes, and you wouldn't be too surprised. He's a very good slasher. He's very, very high in terms of energy. And every time he stepped on the court, you know, he's made it a solid player to to where you want to see a little bit more of him. You've seen him even creep into the regular rotation for this Thunder squad when they're looking down to nine or ten guys in the rotation. So you could upgrade one and now you're looking at a two-way deal open. But that kind of limits how you can use utilize those spots. The natural progression of the two ways make more sense, but I do think it's worth mentioning. Certain players are not eligible for two-way contracts. You can't bring a long-time NBA veteran in on a two-way deal. If you're past four years in NBA experience, you're not eligible. So someone such as Andre Roberson, if they wanted to bring him up, I don't know exactly if they would right now, you can't bring him up on a two-way. It has to be a standard contract. A guy like DJ Wilson, he's on the inactive list right now. He's currently injured, but... If he were to be healthy, you'd have to sign him to a standard contract. So a standard deal could be for a two-way contract upgrade, but it also could be for a veteran. If you're looking at a two-way deal, that has to be someone in their first four seasons of professional play. If we're looking at two-way guys, you still have options. The board's a little bit more limited because of it. But Olivier Saar is healthy again. They had him on a two-way deal last year. He played pretty well on it. 
And even the Portland Trailblazers for a brief moment this season had him on a two-way until he got injured and they decided to waive him. He's looked efficient. He's had some fouling issues with the blue getting back into the swing of things. But you know from previous experience that he's a good plug-and-play type of guy. So bring him back for a second season if you would like to. Sasha Calais-Jones is another guy who just got off the injury list for the Thunder. And he fits the mold of what they've kind of been building uh, in terms of G League centers. Guys like Moses Brown and Omer Yurt 7 have followed this trend, so has Sasha. The offensive rebound percentage for him has been ridiculous. Previously, when he was overseas, he led the league in offensive rebounding percentage. And though we haven't seen much G League activity from him, those numbers indicate he's a pretty good rebounder. We haven't seen a ton of offensive rebounds from him, but he's a very solid rebounder for this blue squad. Clearly, they were interested. He was one of the first guys to get an Exhibit 10 this year. So if they don't immediately fill it, and if he gets on a roll, I could actually see that natural movement to him uh, being moved to a two-way contract. I think the one that might pop out the most to some of you would be Jamias Ramsey. He was injured. He's healthy again. He's been leading the blue and scoring really for the last two seasons. When he got acquired in February of last year, he was very dominant as a scorer. And even with assignments, NBA assignments on the court, he's been leading in scoring. He's a very high usage type of player. That he, He's insanely good offensively at driving and even shooting from distance. But is that someone the Thunder would bring in when they already have SGA and Giddy controlling a lot? But also guys like Isaiah Joe and Trey Mann in the fold. Is it a natural fit? I think in terms of skill set, yes, but do you have the ability to give him consistent enough minutes? That I don't know. Robert Woodard II is another guy that comes to my mind, former second round pick by the Sacramento Kings. He's been playing better for the Blue. His main issue is the three ball though, and if you're playing small forward or power forward for this squad, probably need a refined three-point game. Outside of just the natural Blue guys, there's plenty of options in the G League. Craig Randall the second is back in the G League. He was overseas in the NBL before his contract was terminated. Uh, I think the team and him uh, had a little bit of discourse to where uh, he was just let go. But he's playing for the Iowa Wolves now. He dropped 35 points against the Phoenix Suns in preseason. Looked very talented and he's still very talented as a scorer. Another high usage guy though to where... I don't know if the Thunder would necessarily want him, especially after Isaiah Joe has kind of claimed that role, but he's a very talented piece. Xavier Simpson, he was with the Blue organization for two seasons. Now he's with Lakeland. He's been really consistent, not just as a scorer, but also as a passer. From deep, he's shooting over 45%, which is wild based on his uh, Blue seasons, but he's been very refined. And even a guy like Grant Golden might not have heard of him, but he's posting near triple doubles in the front court right now. So he can give you a little bit of uh, something to work with at the four and the five. I think ideally you're looking to get another player to bolster your front court, but there's so many different ways you can utilize two-way contracts and standard contracts. I would think they try to fill it. They try to tap into something or somebody that they think has a lot 
uh, to potentially offer for their G League squad or for their main squad. Uh, but that is probably something that you would see in the next couple of weeks when other types of deals look to unfold. But this was, I'd say, a fairly eventful trade deadline for the Thunder. Is it flash like flashy at all? Not really. But they were able to improve uh, and kind of build upon what we've already seen in terms of their draft capital. When you're looking at the future for them, 15 first-round picks and 19 second-round picks in the next seven drafts. Are they really going to be able to draft 34 players in seven years? Nope, that's not going to happen. So they're going to need to make trades. But when you start to see former first-round picks in their second year get dealt for two second-round picks, a former number two overall pick get dealt for five second-round picks, currency of second-round picks just being pretty valuable that makes you feel good when you have 19 but also when you have 15 future first round picks you start to broaden your horizons a little bit and say hey we could go all in and cash in on a big time name they haven't pulled the trigger yet they are still on the rise but you most definitely have to keep that type of stuff in mind so that is going to do it for today's episode if you guys want me to do an overall coverage on the league's trade deadline make sure to let me know I'll be getting back to coverage on the games in the next pod, so you guys can look out for that. Big, big game earlier in the week between the Lakers and the Thunder. I will have you guys covered. Uh, But other than that, though, guys, that is going to do it for today's episode. I thank you all for listening, and I will talk to you all next time. See ya.